Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Barjesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. In our last study, Barnabas and Saul were sent on a mission by the congregation at Antioch. The leaders of the church prayed for them and laid hands on them and sent them away. It's not surprising to see the church at Antioch having what we might call a missionary spirit. The congregation was a living manifestation of the grace of God. It was the first congregation to consist of both Jews and Gentiles together in one body, without the direct intervention of God. The congregation in Caesarea would have had the same kind of makeup after the conversion of Cornelius. But the evangelization of Gentiles in Antioch was born purely from the spirituality and devotion of the Jewish Christians who had been driven there by persecution and their enlightened understanding of God's purpose to redeem all nations in Christ. God's grace and salvation to them had become like a river flowing from within them and filling the world around them. When Luke gives a glimpse into the lives of the Christians there, we find them utterly consumed with the work of the kingdom. So these are the sort of people we would expect to launch a major missionary work. However, the Bible says they did not do it alone. It was the Holy Spirit who planned this mission and called the missionaries. That's in Acts 13.4. Luke describes them as being sent out by the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit told the church, or Saul and Barnabas, at the beginning where all they were supposed to go, Luke doesn't mention it. He simply reports that the Spirit described it as the work to which I have called them, Acts 13.3. But evidently there was some sort of ongoing direction from the Spirit, giving them guidance for where they should travel. In subsequent chapters of Acts, we will learn that this guidance was based on the perfect knowledge of God concerning where people were located who were His people. That doesn't mean they were already saved, but they were people who were hungering and thirsting for God's justification 
and they would receive the word with eagerness. It does not seem that every step on their journey was directed by the Lord, but rather that he would give special instructions at key moments as they searched for the good ground in which to plant the seed of the kingdom. The point of all this is that mission work is presented with two sides in the book of Acts. It is, on the one hand, the natural outgrowth of a pious understanding of God's eternal purpose. It essentially involves human work and human initiative, according to Romans 10 and 14. Every congregation should be involved in it. The church that lacks a missionary program of some sort reflects either a misunderstanding of God's will or a rebellion against God's authority. The first command of King Jesus was, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Matthew 28.19 and Mark 16.15. But on the other hand, missions are the work of God himself. At this stage, God was involved in a very palpable and often verbal way. Several times, he directed the workers with visions and angels and special revelations. But there will also be times when God's work is invisible, but still very real. While we may conclude that certain expressions of divine involvement in missions were extraordinary and are not to be expected in the modern world, we must not forget that God is the great evangelist who is working all things toward an end that he has promised and predicted will be absolutely successful. We are his servants in this endeavor, and our labor, whatever it is, is not in vain. Thus, picking up in verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. That was the seaport on the Orontes River, about 41 miles from Antioch, if traveled by water. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Caesar Augustus had given control of the copper mines on Cyprus to Herod the Great, and this motivated a large number of Jews to migrate to the island. Barnabas, as well as many of the founding members of the Antioch Church, were natives of Cyprus. Consequently, there would be several leads, as we might say, for the preachers to visit and study with. So it was a very reasonable place for the missions to begin. Verse 5. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Salamis was the largest city on the island, and this introduces us to the first major aspect of the apostolic pattern for missions, preaching in the populated regions, or what we might say, the big cities. There are several issues related to that distinctive feature of first century missions that need to be considered in a separate special study, but it is at least worthy of note at this point. Another major aspect of the apostolic pattern for missions was preaching first in the synagogues, if that was an option. It appears there were two motivations for this practice. One was theological. God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and worked through their lineage to bring Messiah into the world. And while those promises did not guarantee personal salvation for every physical descendant of those three men, yet for the sake of the fathers, God offered the blessing of justification by faith and full redemption into his kingdom to national Israel first, according to Peter in Acts 3.26. Even on this mission, with a special emphasis on the nations, that fact was ever kept in mind. Salamis has multiple synagogues, according to Luke, although we don't know how many. Likely this means they had spent several weeks here because they would teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Yet Luke offers no report of how this preaching effort fared. 
There's no record of them visiting Salamis again, so it's possible that they were met with disinterest. Yet, if that is so, it is very striking that this neither deterred their resolve to continue in the mission, nor did it provoke them to change their mode of operation, as we shall see. But of particular interest is the end of verse 5, where Luke reports, they also had John, that is John Mark, as their assistant. As we already noted, Luke does not mention Titus. He was with them when they went to Jerusalem, but Luke did not report that. He may have been with them now. But John Mark will come up later regarding his conduct on this trip, so Luke brings him to the forefront. As we noted in the previous lesson, bringing along a young man in the work was the apostolic model for the training of evangelists. Here we discover that while they were present with the older and more experienced servants, they acted as their assistants or helpers. We're not informed exactly what kind of work this entailed for Mark, but the term implies that while he was with Barnabas and Saul, he was in a position of subordination to them. They were his instructors, and he was their student. They were the men of wisdom and experience, and he assisted them in the work. Respectful service is vital on the part of a young man who wants to be involved in this kind of arrangement. Similarly, thoughtful and patient instruction and guidance is vital on the part of the older man who wants to be involved in the same. Eventually, the older preacher would complete his instruction to the younger preacher. But it seems that under normal circumstances, their relationship did not end. It merely moved into a new phase. The younger preacher may have eventually reached a point where he matched his instructor in talent and even in knowledge, but he would never match or surpass him in age or experience. That meant something to the early Christians. And as long as the older preacher remained faithful, he continued to be like a spiritual father to the one he trained. Paul would send Titus, Timothy, and Luke here and there, and he would give them instructions as to what they should do once they arrived, or he would leave them behind to continue a work that they had started together if he needed to press on. Not all of the young men were faithful in this work, but some were, and they were the ones who the Spirit of God enshrined in Scripture with praise and commendation. There would come a time when the young preachers no longer had their instructors, but while they did, even as they grew and progressed to greater and greater degrees of independence, they retained a relationship of spiritual guidance, moral accountability, and supportive service with the one who had shown them the way of service to Christ. You'll find all the things I've just described as the substance of Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. Again, I say this is God's plan for the training of preachers. It unquantifiably surpasses a mere degree from a Bible college or a summer attending meetings. And we should pray that God would raise up men to restore it in our own day and in our own churches. Continuing in verse 6, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, the island of Cyprus was about 150 miles long, and Paphos was on the other side from Salamis. Because of the mountainous interior of the island, it's likely they traveled along the southern coast, which would have been a journey of about 100 miles. Salamis had been the old Greek capital of Cyprus. Paphos was the Roman capital. And like Salamis, it was a large city with all the luxuries and decadence commonly associated therewith. While we are not informed about their response in Salamis, 
only that Barnabas and Saul preached in several synagogues, that statement indicates that there was a vibrant Jewish culture in that city. In Paphos, however, there is no mention of them going into a synagogue, and the only Jew we learned that they met was one who was far from loyal to the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 6 continues that they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 11, the Bible lists seven varieties of sorcerer, all of whose arts and practices were forbidden in Israel under penalty of death. First, there were observers of times, also translated observers of clouds. Dr. James Freeman says, This is one that distinguishes lucky from unlucky days, recommending certain days for the commencement of enterprises and forbidding other days or months or years. In other words, it's an ancient version of astrology or the zodiac or the horoscope as a means of learning truth or seeing the future. Second were enchanters, also translated interpreters or seekers of omens. An omen is an incident taken as a prophetic sign, either good or bad. Enchanting refers to determining one's fortune or trying to tell the future through things like bibliomancy, randomly opening a book, placing your finger on a line, and taking the words as a divine message, or reading a pattern of tea leaves at the bottom of a cup, or tarot cards, or other similar practices. In the ancient world, and even to this day, the forms through which this kind of sorcery is practiced are seemingly endless. You can see Ezekiel 21.21 as an example. Third was witchcraft or magic. One translation uses the word psychics, referring generically to various kinds of claims made by men and women to heal disease, to read minds, to levitate, to cause items to materialize and dematerialize, and to attest that their work was real supernatural power. A fourth kind of sorcerer was a charmer, or a master of charms, or a conjurer, or a caster of spells. This word can refer to a snake charmer someone who seems able to manipulate men or animals or to control minds, and it may also refer to as one who manufactures trinkets or talismans for good luck or to cure a disease, or someone who makes potions and medicines for the purpose of inducing trances and hallucinations. Number five was a consulter with familiar spirits. The English phrase familiar spirit means that the person had control over some kind of ghost or spirit being, and he or she would use the spirit to contact the other world, to speak with the dead, or to perform some great feat beyond normal human ability. But the phrase in Hebrew described a tool used for ventriloquism, called a mumbling bottle, which seems to indicate that these people were known by more discerning folks as charlatans and frauds. Number six was a wizard. This word referred to a class of advisors in the ancient world who whispered and muttered, they claimed to have knowledge beyond normal abilities, to have access to dark secrets, to see the future and communicate directly with angels or demons or ghosts or even God himself. Finally, there was the necromancer. And this word refers to those who attempted to speak with the dead by various means. In the ancient world, Dr. Freeman says that many would request a piece of the deceased's corpse, maybe some hair or bone, or they might actually use the corpse in the ceremony, pouring warm blood into the body as if to renew life. 
Often they would claim abilities to see or to hear spirits that others could not perceive. Now, although we're uncertain which of these forms was practiced by Barjesus, which name simply means the son of Joshua, all of them were unlawful and wicked according to the law of Moses, and the same sort of prohibitions are found in the New Testament. Perhaps this man was what Moses called a wizard, since Luke calls him a false prophet. In fact, it's very likely that he used the biblical records of the true prophets of God to convince others that he was one of them, when in fact he was a huckster and a deceiver. Luke says in verse 7 that this man was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul would be the governor of the island when it was a senatorial rather than an imperial province. At this point in history, Cyprus was a senatorial province, so Luke demonstrates his historical accuracy, as usual, by using the proper terms. Bar-Jesus was with the proconsul, language which indicates that he had been welcomed into his staff as a special advisor. But Luke reports, probably on the testimony of Saul, that the proconsul was an intelligent man. Very likely, he had accepted Bar-Jesus on the basis that the claims of the Jewish prophets carried more weight than what he had previously seen in the soothsayers of his pagan upbringing. But now he's heard of something even more spectacular. Verse 7, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Although there's no report of synagogue preaching, there must have been some preaching somewhere, and likely miracle working, so as to attract the attention of both the sorcerer and the statesman. Verse 8, but Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elymas was a Greek spelling of an Arabic word meaning either wise or strong and was a title which Bar-Jesus had taken on himself in reference with his sorcerous arts. When Luke says he withstood them, this may have been through some pageantry where he tried to cast a hex on the Christians or something like that. Or it could be that he stood close to the seat of Sergius Paulus and he whispered in his ear to try to undermine what the preachers were saying. Luke says he was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith, that is to prevent him from accepting the body of teaching concerning Jesus Christ that the evangelists were presenting. Verse 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul. Finally, Luke changes his reference to Saul to the name by which the world would come to know him. Notice there's no comment from Luke about this being a formal name change associated with his conversion to Christianity or with this incident on Cyprus, although many preachers and Bible commentators have made both of those claims. The greater likelihood is that among Greek speakers, he went by the name Paul, while among his Hebrew brethren, he went by the name Saul. From here on out, he would be focusing his ministry to the Gentiles, and so Luke, who was a Gentile himself, will call him Paul. And that's what he's going to call himself when he writes to the churches. Paul steps forward now as the leading figure. And Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, we suggest that he had received the helper like the twelve from Jesus during his time in Arabia. But in the style of Luke's regular reports of apostolic work and preaching, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon him in a powerful way at certain times. So literally, the passage reads, as in the New American Standard Version margin, 
having just been filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul looked intently at him, that is, at the sorcerer, and said, O full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight way of the Lord? Paul's descriptions of this man and our understanding of sorcery, that it was deceit and fraud rather than real mystical power, go hand in hand. He called him a son of the devil, which was a phrase used by Jesus to describe those who were spiritually dishonest and who put themselves in league with Satan by doing his will, John 8, 44. While John the baptizer described himself as one who prepared others to accept the Messiah by making crooked paths straight and correcting the misconceptions and errors that might have prevented them from seeing Jesus for who he was, Elymas was doing the opposite. He perverted or made crooked the straight ways of the Lord in an effort to conceal the truth about Jesus from the proconsul. Verse 11, And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. This man claimed to be the wisdom and power of God, but the power of God was about to be on display against him. And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. There are some very interesting, in fact, very unusual features of this incident. First, Paul seems to respond to him in a way that is almost an imitation of the sort of things sorcerers would do at that time. When Luke says he looked intently at him, that seems to be somewhat connected with the so-called evil eye a horrible gaze that was believed by the superstitious to cause harm against the one who was gazed upon. Then there is the appearance of a dark mist that fell on him. Some suggest this is a medical term that Luke used as a physician, but it might also have referred to an actual physical phenomenon that God worked to manifest his power to the pagan crowd. The final language indicates that Others did not want to touch him after he was thus cursed for fear that they might come under divine judgment also. Earlier, we saw the occasion when God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for their blasphemous attempt to lie to the apostles and impugn the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. What happens here is similar, as the sorcerer is blinded, perhaps to show that he is a blind guide, not worthy of being followed away from Christ, although Paul said it would only be a temporary punishment. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice that two things contributed to the faith of the proconsul. Verse 12, He saw what had been done, and he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The miracle verified the authority of the apostles, but it was not the miracle that converted this man to Christ. It was the teaching of the Lord. This is one of the few cases in the book of Acts where a conversion record does not include baptism. However, this has no bearing on the meaning or importance of baptism. Luke has already sufficiently demonstrated that immersion in water is an integral part of the process of being forgiven of sins and becoming a Christian. There's no reasonable question as to whether the proconsul was baptized if, by what Luke says here, he means that he actually became a follower of Christ. And that brings us to something worthy of some discussion. The proconsul was by far 
the most powerful man in the book of Acts recorded to have become a Christian. He was the governor of a senatorial province of the Roman Empire. And he had tremendous influence on the way things were done and run on the island of Cyprus. Throughout this study, we have considered how the book of Acts was written to describe the establishment and growth of Christ's kingdom in its forward progress to conquer the world for Jesus. But among those who believe that the Messianic kingdom is destined to be victorious, there are disagreements, in particular, about how it's going to play out in regard to civil government. The prophet Daniel said that the kingdom which the God of heaven established through Messiah was like a stone that would strike the nations of the earth and break them in pieces so they would blow away like chaff from the threshing floor, and the kingdom would consume these kingdoms. Isaiah says that the end result of Christ's reign in the earth is that nation will not war against nation. They will destroy their weapons and turn them into implements of farming and industry, and they will learn war no longer. John the Revelator saw that through the work of Jesus, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But how will this be actualized? That's a difficult question to answer. But one historic hypothesis is called theonomic reconstructionism. Theonomy means God's law, and in this view, the institutions of the world, especially the civil governments, will be overtaken by Christians and reconstructed to operate according to the law of God. Of course, even those who hold this view acknowledge that Christ has given no instruction on how nations should operate or how his followers should function as magistrates or kings or governors or any other kind of civil agent. Therefore, most theonomic reconstructionists suggest that when this occurs, the government should operate by the civil laws given to Israel by Moses. We don't have time to carefully consider that view today, but we can simply make this meaningful observation. Here in Acts 13, we have the conversion of a high-ranking government official. Secular history mentions his name, but there's no indication either in the Bible or any other record that Cyprus hereafter became a Christian island under his rule. We do not know if he remained the proconsul or if he left office after he became a follower of Christ. This account does not give sufficient information to even make a conjecture on that. We'll have to consider what the apostles teach in other places about the civil government to get a sense of whether Christians belong there, and if so, how they should live in that role. What we do learn in this case is that the conquest of King Jesus knows no boundaries. Whether or not Christians should become politicians, it is certainly true that all politicians and all men everywhere should become Christians. Christ desires every soul in every nation that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. Whatever will come of that, it will certainly bring about the prophet's words. The world will forever be changed as it becomes more and more the kingdom of God. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
You can contact us at Tulsa Church of Christ at gmail.com or visit Tulsa Church of Christ.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.